First Peter chapter 3. This morning, our passage is limited to one verse, but the one verse has plenty of information. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter continues writing, and he says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Remember, as we have walked through and talked through the epistle of Peter, it broadly covers the themes of God's grace and salvation in chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. And then it talks about God's grace in submission in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through chapter 3, ending here, well, actually, ending in, in, in verse 12, and then God's grace in suffering, chapter 3, verse 13, all the way to chapter 5, verse 11. Peter has already addressed the issue of submission to authorities and institutions in chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Submission to masters in chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And now Peter addresses the issue of submission in the home in verses 1 through 7. And for those of you who weren't here last week, you'll recall that in verses 1 through 6, I reminded you, ladies, someone might, might say, well, why are the ladies' instructions six times longer than the men's instructions? And for good reason, because it's six times harder. Later in the chapter, Peter will deal with the issue of submission in the church in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Now Peter will give some of the duties of the Christian husband. And so in this little verse, it's actually a fairly large verse, husbands are to be companions at the beginning of the verse, considerate and cooperative and careful. And so in, in verse 7, when it says, Husbands likewise dwell with them, make no mistake. Peter is addressing Christian husbands. Now, the scripture's message to the unbelieving husband is to repent of their sin and their unbelief and to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. There's a reason why that's the message of the Bible to the unbeliever. Because quite frankly, the unbeliever is not going to be able to do what this passage says. So for the unbeliever and for the make-believer, <coughs> this verse is only going to spell real pain and real sorrow. You might be wondering, well, will the unbelieving husband benefit from the passage? Again, I don't think so. Because the principles and the duties aren't simply advice. They are commands. And make no mistake about it, they are difficult commands. I'm going to even go so far as to say impossible commands to follow. Apart from the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit living in the life of the believer. And so, in verse 1, or actually in verse 7... It says, husbands, likewise, 
dwell with them. Now, once again, Peter writes, likewise. And we've seen this word before in 1 Peter. It's a reference to submission. If you go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 13, where it says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And then again in verse 18, servants be submissive to your masters. And then again in verse 1, wives likewise be submissive to your husbands. What Peter is basically saying is in that same way or under the same auspices, the husband is to submit in what way? To the service and servanthood that you're being called to, to loving and caring for your wife. And that's going to include consideration. And I'm going to use a dead word that many of you may have no idea what it means, but we're going to address it a little bit later on. It's the word chivalry. Consideration, chivalry, companionship. And so when it says husbands likewise dwell with them, husbands are to provide companionship for their wives. And remember, sharing a home is no substitute for sharing a life. By the way, the, the phrase translated dwell with has the Greek present participle. It's used as an imperative. It's from the verb synoikeo. It's only here in the Greek New Testament. It's a compound verb. S-Y-N, syn, means together. Oikeo means to dwell. And that has a root word, oikos, which means in the home. And so actually, literally, it means living together in the same house. Today, we would even say to live with. Now, the word means way more than husbands living with your wives. Clearly, it carries the idea of proximity, but it also carries the idea of intimacy. Husbands are to live with their wives in intimacy. And that means they're not to live with other people in intimacy. There are times and there are circumstances when a husband cannot be with his wife. Clearly, in ancient times, husbands had to travel. They had to conduct business. They had to provide and protect or pursue issues necessary for either family or country. But the apostle is leaving the reader with the impression that that's the exception and not the rule. Christians are not to leave their wives or order their wives to leave. And so when a husband comes to me and says, I'm leaving my wife. Or if a husband comes to me and says, I've asked my wife to leave. Almost invariably, I will turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, to this particular passage, and I'll say, you know what? It's a bad idea. And let me tell you why it's a bad idea. Because real problems and real pain isn't going to be resolved by living apart. It's going to be resolved by living together. 
And clearly there might be circumstances where health or safety is an issue. And clearly if health or safety is an issue, I'm not for a moment suggesting that you stay in an abusive situation. But I am saying that this is the reason why the scripture says what the scripture says. And it says husbands likewise dwell with them. Look what it says with understanding. Also, this could be translated careful consideration. And you've got to understand something. The moment that Peter puts these words down in print and calls for a husband to read them, the command is revolutionary. Peter's command isn't to live with her and understand the way that the husband is. You know, when a husband says to his wife, honey, you know how I am. The wife can respond respectfully and biblically. Now, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, it, you're not supposed to live with me and, understand, and I'm supposed to understand the way that you are. You're supposed to understand the way that I am. I know what, I see this look of color draining from husband's face as they think about, is this even possible? Well, let me help you with something. Living with her and understanding the way that she is doesn't mean simply knowing her dress size or her shoe size or her favorite color or her favorite food. It means live with her and understand the way that she is mentally, emotionally, and spiritually constructed. As a matter of fact, Chuck Swindoll writes, quote, It involves perceiving her innermost makeup, discerning her deep-seated concern and fears, helping her work through them, and listen carefully, in the safety and security of your love. I'm so glad that Swindoll wrote that. It isn't necessarily knowing everything about everything. But clearly it is about knowing something and working in an atmosphere of the safety and security of love. And so husband, it is okay for you to ask the question, well, how is my wife? How is she? What is she like? Is she more likely to respond to demands or requests? I got to tell you something. If your wife is anything like my wife, she's way more likely to respond to requests. Is she sensitive? Is she thoughtful? Is she caring? Does she think it's your job to straighten her out? Or does she think she deserves to be the butt of your jokes? Does she love it when you have an angry outburst in the middle of an intimate conversation? Do you think she loves and appreciates you dwelling on her past mistakes? All the while conveniently forgetting about your own. Well again, if your wife is anything like my wife... I'm going to suspect that those aren't things that she does appreciate. The Bible commands husbands not only to live with your wife, but to do it with understanding. And by the way, I don't mean to be rude here, but husbands are not called to live with their wives as thoughtless, ignorant fools or selfish bigots. 
And even as I say these words, I am absolutely profoundly aware that I'm not exempt from the command. My only comfort is not that I'm wise or that I'm more understanding, but rather confident that the Lord Jesus can and must and will help me. Husbands are to understand their wives. They're to understand the meaning of marriage. They're to understand the power of God. They're to understand the duties of the, uh, uh, what it means to be a husband. And let me be very clear, that's a very tall order. And if you're a young man, and if you are dating a woman, and if you are seriously considering marriage, if you're considering being a husband, but you're unwilling to understand and embrace the meaning of marriage, the power of God, or the duties of husbands, let me be very, very clear here. Don't get married. Hundreds of years ago, Matthew Henry gave timeless advice. He says, husbands are to dwell with their wife according to knowledge, not according to lust, as brutes, nor according to passion, as devils, but according to knowledge, as wise and sober men who know the word of God and who understand their duties. By the way, in the ancient world, men often regarded women as confused or ignorant or not able to be educated. And I wish I could say, oh, that's just in the ancient world. But it's not true. In order for a Christian husband to understand his Christian wife, it means coming to grips with prejudices and cherished stereotypes that might color your understanding. I was once in a... uh, (laughs) In an airport, and I went into the bookstore, I saw a book, it it had this great attractive cover, and it said, everything you ever wanted to know about what women want the most. It was 300 pages long. (laughs) I couldn't resist. I opened it up, and it was 300 blank pages. The command seems to go deeper than to just have some kind of clueless attitude. Clearly, the Bible says that we're to understand her needs and her desires and her gifts and her abilities. Now, this is going to not come as a surprise to any of the wives. But men are sinners by nature and by choice. And sin encourages us to neglect each other's needs instead of trying to meet each other's needs. Sin does something else. It encourages us to ignore each other's complaint instead of responding in a God-honoring fashion. Now, what's wonderful about having little baby grandchildren crawling around and crying around is that babies are ruthless in communicating their needs. Babies, when they're wet, guess what they do? They let you know. When they're hungry, guess what they do? They let you know. When they have a little gas, guess what they do? They let you know. When they're neglected, guess what they do? They let you know. The problem with a baby is they only have one tool in which to communicate. What do you suppose it is? That's it exactly. 
And so if you're easily intimidated or frustrated by the one tool that the baby has, it's going to be very difficult to deal with the baby. But guess what, ladies? Men have even less than that one tool. Many women suppose that men should be smart and they should be sensitive and they should be aware and they should be connected not only with your feelings but with their own feelings. Guess what? Some of them aren't. Men are programmed to ignore complaints and so they need help in order to respond. And by the way, abuse and control are not the biblical solutions to conflict. We are encouraged by sin and our culture to create a self-centered lifestyle rather than a servant-centered lifestyle. We live in a world designed to tear us apart rather than to bring us together. And so the truth is we can't look to the world to be the source of information on how we are to love and understand and treat our wives. And since God's plan in marriage is unity, and since Satan's plan is to drive the marriage apart, you can imagine that Satan is willing to give both men and women all of the tools that they need in order for their relationship to fail. To live together requires an understanding of God's principles on the roles of husbands and wives. There's a reason why the Bible says, therefore a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to the woman and the two shall become one. In almost every marriage that I do, and I'm going to be doing one in just a couple of days, typically I'll say, therefore a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to the woman and the two shall become one. And now you're going to spend your whole life trying to figure out which one. That's probably not the meaning of the text, though. And then I tell them to take a good, hard look at each other because they'll never be this young or this thin ever again. I just want to get them off on the right foot, if you know what I mean. Really, unity, in order to be unity, has to include trust and respect and affection. To live together requires understandings. And in order to understand wives, men are going to have to purchase some tools. And one of those tools includes the very simple tool of questions. Like, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? What have you been doing? What are you planning? What's bothering you? Men's simple questions and a willingness to listen to the answers to those questions isn't going to quote unquote revolutionize your marriage, but it's going to give you the ability to at least walk in a direction that's going to make sense. Peter continues and he says, that the Christian husband honors his wife. Look at what it says, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. And by the way, the word honor is timon. The word 
Timothy is actually the name. Timothy comes from that Greek word. It means to value. It means to esteem. It means to prize. It means to count as precious. And the word was used to describe precious jewels, priceless objects. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that your wife is simply an object or that you are to objectify your wife. We might even use the phrase giving respectful consideration. And here, giving honor probably means finding, making a special place in order for you to express that honor. Now, men, like women, have things that they prize. When you're a kid growing up, you may have won a medal in track or a trophy in sports. You may have won a golf tournament or some other prize at work. And so whatever it is that you consider valuable, you find a special place for the thing that you find valuable. And that's part of what Peter is saying. Find a special place for her. And clearly it means the special place in your heart. Many years ago, Gary Smalley and John Trent wrote a book entitled The Gift of Honor. And there is one helpful paragraph in there where it says, quote, In ancient writings, something of honor was something of substance. It literally meant heavy, valuable, costly, even priceless. For Homer, the Greek scholar, quote, The greater the cost of the gift the more, the honor, unquote. Not only does it signify something or someone who is a priceless treasure, but it's also used for someone who occupies a highly respected position in your life. It is that person that you place on the top of the priority list. That's the idea. And so in a real sense, Christian husbands are to put their wives on the top of that human priority list. The place begins in the heart. It continues in the home. And it ends when life ends. And so a Christian husband is to show respect and honor. We're not given permission to make our wives feel worthless or unappreciated. And by the way, honor cannot mean worthless. Honor cannot mean ungrateful. Honor cannot mean unappreciated. We are certainly not given permission to intimidate, humiliate, criticize, chastise. By the way, intimidation, humiliation, criticism... These aren't words that you use in the same sentence with honor. By the way, honor also doesn't mean control. Honor also can't mean speak to her like she's a child. Or speak to her like she's a servant. Let me just be very clear here. Peter wants husbands to understand that that is pagan behavior. That is the behavior of an unbeliever. That is not the behavior of a Christian. And so because those are the behaviors of a pagan or an, or an unbeliever, Peter leaves us with the impression that the husband honors his wife voluntarily and gladly and publicly. He doesn't just simply speak well of her privately. 
but also publicly. When Peter uses the word or the term weaker vessel, he doesn't write it in order to engender a gender debate. He isn't writing this so that colleges and universities and seminaries will begin to conduct a battle of words over the war of the sexes. When Peter uses the term weaker vessel, let me help you with it. The word weaker is asthenestero. The word translated vessel is skuse. It means container. But clearly, it doesn't refer to a container that is broken or inferior. And so here, the idea isn't moral inferiority or spiritual inferiority or intellectual inferiority. By the way, it means by and large the presence of physical strength and size. Make no mistake about it. Particularly if you're a lady and you somehow are objected to this term. The Bible simply speaks of all human beings as being vessels. All human beings are like pots. And God is the potter. And so some women who take strong objection to the idea that women are frail or weak. Or who are inherently different. Need to understand something. The Bible makes it abundantly clear men and women are different by design. And women may welcome the difference. They may debate the difference. They may demand that the difference be ignored. But men, your first holy obligation is to God. Last week after the study, a lady in our church told me the story of a man who was riding a bus. She was... She was she thought of the story when I told the story last week. A, a woman was riding a bus which was full and a woman came on board and the man politely offered her his seat and the woman was a member of the local chapter of the Women's Liberation and, and demanded to know the reason why he offered the seat and was it because she was a woman? His reply was, no, I am not doing this because you're a lady. I'm doing this because I'm a gentleman. Does honor include being a gentleman? I think so. Does honor include protection? I think so. Does honor include provision? I think so. Does honor include taking spiritual leadership in the home? I think so. The husband's duty is to honor his wife and to love his wife. In Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. When Paul gives the order, husbands, love your wives, if love is a meaningful expression, it means a willingness to do what's right and what's beneficial for her. 
Does it include affection? I think so. Affection. Love is affection to captivate. Love is oil to lubricate. Love is life to rejuvenate. Love is power to consecrate. Love is spring to animate. Love is tonic to stimulate. Love is grace to elevate. And so he'll talk about grace. In ancient England, they used a word, now long dead. The word is chivalry. And by the way, the word is derived from a French word, chevalier. That word came to mean knight because the word cheval is a word that was the word for horse, indicating a person who rides a horse. In Spanish society, they speak of caballeros. It doesn't mean just simply the guy who rides the horse. It's now come to mean also a gentleman. And the word came to mean the duties of a knight in providing honorable and sacrificial protection to the weak and to the vulnerable. And men, you may think it an ancient idea. You may think that this is a dream and an ideology that's lost in antiquity. But I think God has placed inside of the heart of every woman a desire for a man who will honor her, who will prize her, provide for her, who will protect her. Peter argues that husbands are to honor their wives in part for the reason that they are vulnerable. That's what he means. The woman is more vulnerable to abuse, to all kinds of abuse, whether it's mental, emotional, physical abuse, to untrust, unjust treatment, to domestic abuse or violence or abandonment. And the whole point that Peter is making is that in relationships, often you have a situation where one person is more vulnerable than the other person. And when you take that into consideration, you defer. You never shake a baby. You never slap a baby. You never take an infant simply because the infant is crying and smother the infant in order to make the infant do what you want it to do. Everybody, everybody, everybody knows it's not right to hurt a baby. So how could you not know that it's not right to take advantage of someone who's vulnerable? And so Peter's argument moves from the issue of companionship to the issue of consideration to the issue of cooperation. You can see it. It's all there. As being heirs together of the grace of life. The husband and the wife are partners together in the grace of life. The husband and wife have something more than their marriage vows. They have something more than their children. They have something more than their grandchildren. They have Christ. They're both partakers of a new nature. They both are partakers of a common destiny. They're both going to heaven to be with Christ. 
And so Peter reminds husbands that in God's eyes, men and women are joint heirs, equal partners in spiritual life and in a common salvation. The husband is not more saved than his wife, not more spiritually gifted than his wife, not more called than his wife, not more given by God with the powers of the Holy Spirit than his wife. God has no gender favorites. There is not a gender designation when it comes to spiritual rights and spiritual privileges and spiritual callings because these are the things that are given by God. And you may miss the point. So unfortunately, tragically, I have to spell it out for you. Husbands are to honor their wives as spiritual equals. And you cannot be honoring in that kind of way if you're constantly taking a superior, subordinate attitude. Husbands are not given permission to be abusive tyrants or dominate or enslave their wives, but rather we are to be servants. We are to see the need and meet the need. And yes, I'm even going to go so far as to say it's more than need and it's more than that. It is want and desire as well. Oh, you can't say that. Okay, then I'll say it again. You can ignore their wants and you can ignore their desires and live unhappily ever after. This is why I say, I wear the pants in the family and every morning she tells me which pair to put on. (laughs) Early on in our marriage, I said, look, honey, when it comes to problem solving, I will deal with all of the big issues and you can deal with the small issues. We've never had a big issue, ever. (laughs) Look what Peter does. We're to be loving. We're to be gentle. We're to be kind. We're to be considerate. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but... You received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. The husband who has the attitude that he's in it by himself will not make it. And Titus chapter 3 verse 7 Paul, writing to Titus, says that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Honor your wife. Peter argues you should honor her because they're weaker vessels, because they're equal in spiritual life and equal in spiritual reward. And now Peter is going to give yet another reason. If those weren't enough reasons. But he's going to give one more reason. To avoid divine discipline. Look what it says. That your prayers may not be hindered. Not only are husbands to be companions. And not only are they to be considerate and cooperative. They're to be careful. Look what it says. 
that your prayers may not be hindered. The word hindered is an interesting word in the original language. In copto, it was used to describe a blockade or the breaking up of a road in the ancient world when they were waging wars and they were trying to prevent the enemy from going from one place to another. They would tear down or tear apart or blockade a road. It was also used to describe detaining someone unnecessarily. And in ancient Rome, the famous orator Tertullius uses the word in the sense of being tedious. Paul uses the same word in writing to the Romans to explain why he had not visited them in Romans 15.22, that he was hindered. In the same way he wrote that Satan hindered him, the same word, on more than one occasion to prevent him from visited, visiting Thessaloniki in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. What happens when a husband fails to honor his wife? What happens when a husband fails and he neglects his wife? What happens when a husband fails to be a companion or considerate or cooperative. This is what happens. The prayers are hindered. Peter says the Holy Spirit is grieved. Satan seizes the opportunity and he establishes a spiritual blockade. Prayers are effectively obstructed. And by the way, can any man afford to have his prayers intercepted and blocked? What do you suppose the answer is? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. It, part of the point that Peter is making is that God is under no obligation to honor or answer the prayers of any husband who dishonors his wife. No matter how spiritual he claims to be. No matter how much he professes to know Jesus or to love Jesus or to serve Jesus. Peter's making a point. How can the Lord hear your cries over the sighs? Of your wife. In the life application commentary, it says, quote, A living relationship with God depends on right relationships with others. Jesus said that if you have a problem with a fellow believer, you must make it right with that person before coming to worship. That's what it says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. This principle carries over into family relationships. If men use their position to mistreat their wife, their relationship with God will suffer. Question. If governments mistreat their citizens, will the government suffer? The answer is yes. If employers mistreat their employees, will their business suffer? I got to tell you something. It may not seem that way at first, but make no mistake about it. These are the seeds of a collapse. 
Can a husband abuse his wife and the marriage doesn't collapse all at once? It is possible. But you're sowing the seeds of collapse. A man should not expect to have a vital ministry in life or prayer if he's mistreating his wife in any way. But the Lord will hear the sighs and the cries of a broken and a contrite heart. The Bible says that these the Lord God will not despise. But God doesn't respond to arrogance or selfishness or foolishness. Both husband and wife must love each other and respect each other and live in light of God's holy instructions, fulfilling mutual duties and obligations. If you want your prayers answered. And remember, we pray for good reason. We're commanded to pray in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. We have Jesus as our example in prayer in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Prayer is the vehicle for crying out to God <coughs> because we're sinners. Prayer restores the backslider and strengthens the saint. Prayer heals the sick, glorifies the father. Prayer imparts wisdom and bestows peace and keeps us from sin and reveals the will of God. And you can't afford to be without it. How can a husband know wisdom and how can a husband know peace and how can a husband know the will of God? If he can't pray with his wife or pray for his wife. If he refuses to honor his wife. Problems in the home and problems in the marriage aren't the only thing that hinders prayer in the, in the Bible. Did you know that? You may not be a husband. You may not even be married. You may think, well, whoo, good thing I don't have to worry about my prayers being hindered. Hey, if this was the only thing that hindered prayer, you would be in, in, in good company. But guess what? We know that unconfessed sin hinders prayer, according to Psalm 66, 18. Insincerity hinders prayer, Matthew 6, 5. Carnal motivations, James 4, 3. Unbelief, Daniel chapter 10. Pride, Luke 18.10. Robbing God, Malachi 3.8. Refusing to forgive or to be forgiven, Matthew 5.23. Refusing to help the needy, Proverbs 21.3. And yes, refusing to submit to biblical teaching will hinder your prayers, according to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 11. You may think, I don't know what to pray. Pray for your marriage. Pray for your pastor. Pray for the sick. Pray for rulers. Pray for your enemies. Pray for Israel. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, if you run out of things to think about, the Bible says, pray for all men. When Henry and Mrs. Henry Ford celebrated their golden anniversary, a reporter asked them, to what do you attribute your 50 years of successful married life? The formula, Ford said, is the same formula that I've always used in making cars. Just stick to one model. 
Now, it would be great if the only secret to marriage was exclusivity. But I think ladies want more. I think ladies want trust and respect and affection. They want honor. And they deserve it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that trust and respect, we know that affection and romance may be easier to talk about than it is to actually have. And so, Lord, we pray that you will give us wisdom and courage and strength. Lord, we pray that you will make us men who are willing to obey the scripture. Lord, we pray that you would make us women who are willing to obey the scripture. And Lord, we pray that all people everywhere will be willing to submit to the Lordship of God and Christ, the Savior. And Lord, for the person who's here and they've been just completely thought, I've been left out of this message. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them. Lord, I pray that we would see the value in not only understanding the scriptures, but being willing to actually do what the scriptures say. Lord, we remember what James wrote, that we're to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. Lord, I pray that a wife would not be content to just simply give the, this tape to her husband. Or that a husband would be simply content to listen dutifully to the tape. But Lord, I pray that we would embrace your best, your highest for our marriages, for our families, for our future. In Jesus' name, amen.